Canada's most populous province is about a month away from going to the polls. The PCs are looking to continue in power, while the official opposition, the NDP, is looking to build on its previous previous success. The Liberals, well, they're trying to find their way out of the woods after being reduced to a rump party. Which way will voters go this time? Hello and welcome to Unpublished TV. I'm Ed Hand. Four years after Doug Ford landed at Queen's Park, he's looking for another mandate. The party's just-announced platform comes with some big spending, more than $198 billion. A return to balance will be further down the road. The NDP platform focuses on health care with promises of more nurses and PSWs, although there's no price tag on that. The Liberals have announced a pay transparency plan and a before and after school care plan to run in line with the Fed's child care plan. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, if the election was held right now, which party would you vote for? 50% said the PCs, 20% said the Liberals, 15% the NDP, and 15% the Green Party. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Joining us to discuss the upcoming election, Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, Tom Parkin, political commentator, and Carl Narenberg, columnist with rabble.ca. And we'll start off with Daryl first. Uh, from your work, healthcare and pocketbook issues have the mind of the electorate. Which party uh, at this point do you say is poised to address them? Well, if you ask Ontarians uh, who would do the best job on healthcare, it's pretty clearly the NDP uh, that's that's out in front on that. And by the way, healthcare is the number one issue when we ask people about the most important issue. Second issue uh, is uh, management of COVID. And on that issue, we find that the Liberal Party is ahead. But then everything after that is all the Conservatives. And it all relates to inflation, cost of living, housing, all of those issues. The Conservatives have a pretty pretty good lead on those. So it really comes down to what's this election going to be about? Is it going to be about COVID? Is it going to be about the future of healthcare? Or is it going to be about issues like inflation and the cost of living? And depending on who, uh, what the election becomes about, uh, either of the three parties could, 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 uh, could, could dominate. Tom, the, it seems the anyone but Ford movement is growing, and, and you had an interesting piece in the Toronto Star this weekend. You feel there doesn't need to be an alliance between the Liberals and the NDP. Why is that? Well, my, my thinking, Ed, was uh, that, you know, I'm not against having a pact. That's a totally legitimate thing, and that can have good outcomes. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to age myself, but I do remember a time before Mike Harris when the legislature used to operate in a very different way. And uh, MPs would serve on committees. Committees for uh, the legislature were more robust. They would have more uh, people from the public, uh, from you know community groups, interest groups, lobby groups, who would make presentations. Uh, they would even travel the province to hear, uh, you know, what they think in Sarnia, what do they think in Sault Ste. Marie, what do they think in Cornwall. Uh, you know, I think that for and, and another interesting thing about that is that it also forced MPPs to socialize. Because you'd be in, in Sarnia and you'd have your hearings, then you'd go for dinner and you have a drink and then you go to the hotel uh, and see everybody at breakfast. So, you know, there's a camaraderie that kind of comes with travel. I think we can all relate to that. And I think this is something that's really missing from our politics today. So my piece for the star was really making the argument that a pact about certain policies is good. But m- my argument was that we've, we've gone too far in the direction of centralization of power in the premier's office. That power, Mike Harris, really centralized things, and they never were fixed. Uh, and so 
would it be possible or who might have the interest in, uh, in, in giving power back to the legislature, letting MPPs having a little, little bit more sway uh, and, and letting the legislature govern a bit more effectively uh, rather than uh, having to come into these uh, pacts that are um, you know, written between leaders' offices only. Uh, Carl, for the Liberals and the NDP, it seems the desire to get rid of Doug Ford and the PCs is is their primary concern, as opposed to presenting policies and getting in discussion. You know, it, it, it's not enough just to just to dislike Doug Ford, is it? No, absolutely not. You have to have something to present. Uh, you know, in defense of the NDP, they came up with a platform. It is it is very high level. It's it touches on all kinds of bases. It has some interesting. Uh, possibilities, but it's really, and this has become a problem, I think, for the NDP federally as well, it's really lacking in granular detail and lacking in in figures and lacking in how do we get from here to there, and sometimes really resorts to vague generalities so that anybody could say it, whereas the Conservatives have a budget, you know, I mean, just to correct what you said a second ago, the Conservatives haven't put out their actual election platform, but they put out something in a way is better. It's a budget, so that it's got all the details and all the and all the figures. Well, actually, it's, even budgets can be vague on a number of points, and the budget fudges a number of points and makes some general uh, uh, observations. The Liberals have put out a few individual in the window policies. Aside from the ones you mentioned, the Liberals talk about banning handguns for the whole province. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Irvin Waller here, uh, an eminent criminologist, says, "Well, that's he's." thinks that's a wrong-headed uh, view. He's not nothing he doesn't favor handguns, but he doesn't think it's possible. He doesn't think it'll work and he thinks there are the, we, he talks about upstream crime prevention which the liberals were once committed to as being more effective. I think that as the campaign goes on, I do think they're going to start trying to roll out uh, policies both the NDP and the liberals and I really hope hope they do and I certainly hope that the NDP goes further than um, a platform without any numbers in it, that they start putting numbers to it and they start making announcements with specific numbers and contrasting themselves what they plan to do with what the Conservatives have already uh, already announced. We know in some areas, for instance, they would get rid of the 1% freeze on public service salaries, especially um, uh, nurses and, and healthcare workers. They have to start talking about those issues and they have to start talking also about what, where they stand on the econo- economy and economic development and encouraging industry, such as the car industry. You know, Daryl, when I look at the PC's campaign literature, does it seem to mention the NDP at all? Just Stephen Del Duque and, and well, tying the connection to Kathleen Wynne. Uh, at this point, are the Liberals the PC's top concern, or is it still the official opposition? You know, it's, uh, I, th- I think that there's a kind of a reflex belief that uh, that the uh, the liberals represent their their biggest challenge. But uh, um, uh, the first stage of this campaign will really not involve the conservatives very much at all. I mean, the first stage of this campaign will be which party becomes the uh, the champion for the progressive uh, voters in the province of Ontario. We saw that very much in the last election campaign as well. Uh, you know, the NDP and Liberals were fairly even, and then the NDP took off and you saw the Liberals drop like a stone. I think there's potential that you could see a similar dynamic this time around uh, because uh, um, the splitting of the vote is something that really hurts both of those parties. Uh, so I think the first stage of this campaign is going to be a, really a competition, you know, evaluating the two potential 
replacements for for Doug Ford. And then the question is whether they'll have enough time at the end of it to really effectively compete with them. Uh, one of the things that's really surprised me is the low level of interest in this campaign, the low level of intensity in the campaign, just as the Conservatives would like it, I suspect. Uh, and by the way, on the question of platform, Doug Ford didn't even release a platform last election yeah. campaign. So it'll be interesting to see what they do this time. But it seems to me at the moment to be a pretty low intensity campaign. The real interesting action will be on the left of the uh, political uh, spectrum, not on the right of the political spectrum. And then if they can get that sorted out, then the question is which party is really going to challenge Doug Ford. And this creates a very good, a very good scenario for Ford. I think. Uh, Tom, how does the NDP build on on its results and, and that uh, success getting to the official opposition from 2018? Well, uh, it's got 40 incumbent seats. So it's obviously uh, a key piece is to make sure that those 40 seats are secure. The NDP has a lot more money than it's ever had before, uh, and it's got far more staff than it's ever had before and, uh, and MPPs. It's got the power of incumbency. So those campaigns, when the election is called, um, uh, I would assume the NDP is going to put a pretty strong emphasis on having those up and going very, you know, as fast as possible to show people in those communities that uh, this, is, this is a campaign that uh, intends to get their person reelected. So, you know, getting the signs up quick, making sure that things are, you know, all of the, the visibility of a local campaign makes it clear to residents how that's going to go. And then there's 10 other seats. Uh, where the New Democrats lost to the PCs by less than 5%. These are places like um, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, Brantford, uh, Scarborough, uh, I'm going to say Scarborough Center. I might be mistaken on that. Um, Ottawa West is another one. Ottawa, Ottawa West, Ottawa West the Pian, uh Brantford West, I believe. Uh, at any rate, there's, there's, there's 10 of them. Uh, 5%. So that's 2.5% of the population switching from PCs to NDP. And those could be wins. So that gets you to 50. Um, then, you know, you might actually kind of secretly not be all that unhappy if the liberals might sneak up a little bit. Um, and you're, of course, looking at the next tier of, uh, of people beyond that. So that's the way I see the campaign uh, going for the Democrats. That's where they're going to have to focus. But it's a, it's a tough, they have a, a tough challenge because I think a lot of people instinctively in Ontario believe that if you want to vote out conservatives, that means you vote liberal. This is, you know, what we've been trained to do since, you know, um, forever. But now this time it's a little different dynamic. Uh, so uh, Horvath has got a job uh, to uh, convince people, to, to re-educate people, if you will, uh, about what the political situation is, her, her leadership, the, the, the uh, liberals have seven seats and their leader doesn't have a seat um, and, and, and really directly put the case forward that, uh, that, that she's the one who can uh, defeat Doug, Hord, uh, Doug Ford. But she also has a secondary argument, uh, which I think is interesting. Uh, it's not just defeat Doug Ford. It's also uh, her back half is and to uh, fix what's, what's been broken, um, which goes, I think, to the point that Carl makes is you got to have something especially to be in relief to the the liberals to say, we're not just going to uh, defeat Doug Ford, but we also got to fix our healthcare system. We got to fix our LTC system. We got to fix our transit systems, all these things that not just under Ford, but under the liberals before, um, you know, decayed and, and became somewhat broken. Uh, so she's 
she's got a, she's got a, a, a as as uh, you know as pointed out the, the progressive primary off the top the, if it's not resolved in time then mr ford will be um walking away but uh if, if it can be resolved um i think we saw last time uh, that by about the may 24th long weekend the new democrats were actually ahead of the pcs in the polling and then there was a reversal at the very end so can be done will it be done well i guess stay tuned right yeah, no kidding. Uh, Carl, you recently wrote, you've never been so frustrated about an election than you are with this one. Why is that? No, I, I don't know if I, I wrote that, but I would say I was frustrated because <laughs> yeah. in this country, uh, the provinces are where the rubber hits the road. If people who care about stuff that government does for you, if, you know, the water that comes out of your tap, municipal, but the municipalities are creatures of the provinces, uh, the kind of housing you're going to have. Uh, the kind of air you breathe every day, your education, your health care, your roads, your services. It's the provinces. We, all, we, we, have such a, we have such an obsessive focus on the theater of the federal government. And yet, oddly, in this country, the federal government has really, really high-level big picture. I mean, their main constitutional responsibilities are the currency, foreign affairs, uh, military, and anything that crosses provincial boundaries. For instance, the federal government, believe it or not, is responsible for the transit drivers of Ottawa and Gatineau mm. because the buses cross cross the border, but they're not. They have nothing to do with the transit drivers in the rest of Ontario. And yet, we give short shrift to uh, pr- provincial politics here in every province except for guess which one, Quebec. Mm. In Quebec, when news announcers talk about in the country today, dans le pays aujourd'hui, they don't mean <sighs> Canada. They mean Quebec. The only place where Provincial stories will lead the national news is on the French news on Radio Canada or on the private stations. Here, we just don't cover it that well. I'll give my friends at CBC Radio, uh, and do, they do their radio noon, and they do often do provincial stuff. But we, we ignore provincial politics too much, considering how much more important most of what the provinces do for the ordinary citizens is than what the federal government does. I mean, do you really care about the currency that much? I mean, it kind of... It's sort of sort of important, but uh, it's not next to whether or not you're going to get treated in the hospital if you get sick. You know, Daryl, I want to follow up on what you said that the the low interest in this election camp. You know, it's it's not underway just yet. It's pretty darn close, though. Is that election fatigue because we had the two federal elections, or is this COVID fatigue, or is just everybody frustrated with everything and they've got better things to do? Well, when you break down the numbers uh, and you take a look at how they're evaluating uh, what's coming forward, the Ontario public is evaluating things, uh, you know, the, the vote numbers are, they're a bit of a meringue in a fiction right now. Uh, you know, they're, they're affected by what people think of the pet federal brands, but, you know, all sorts of things. But when you look at, when you go a little deeper on, uh, on that, you see that level of satisfaction with the provincial governments actually quite high, certainly higher than it is for the federal government. Uh, when you take a look at Doug Ford's personal approval number, numbers, he's way ahead of the opposition leaders. So it's not like people are really feeling a huge need to get at him. And, and that's what drives interest in the election campaign, the, the sense that there's going to be a change that the, or there's potential for change. And at the moment, people in Ontario neither expect there will be a change or have a really strong desire for change. And this is, this is what reduces the likelihood that they'll show up or that they'll even be interested in the campaign is they don't really think there's much going on here. And that's the big challenge, obviously, for the opposition leaders, because they've got to generate some interest in this campaign. And so far, 
they it's, it's, it's pretty tough to do when people are watching, you know, the inflation rate every day and they're watching, uh, you know, what's going on in Ukraine and they're you know worrying about a whole bunch of other things. It's pretty tough to get them interested in this election campaign. And that's to the detriment of the opposition parties. And then, Tom, uh, one of the best ways to, to get attention is, is through debates. Uh, are we expecting many of the many leader debates uh, that we're going to see before the election or uh, not? You know? uh, there was uh, there was a town hall uh, with a, by the pay equity uh, committee, sponsored by the pay equity committee. Um, uh, I, I guess it was uh, about 10 days ago. And then we're going to have the northern debate on uh, the 10th of May, and the consortium, the, the network consortium debate is going to be on the 16th of May. So um, there's there's definitely chances for opposition leaders uh, to to land punches, uh, to uh, make people remember what they don't like about Mr. Ford. But Mr. Ford is also. Um, been somewhat effective recently at you know folksying up his image um and uh you know kind of making people laugh and forgetting that it's about politics so uh, i imagine he'll he'll try and uh as much as daryl said in both debates he'll try and low profile it uh he'll he'll be happy if uh Ms. horvath and mr del duca duke it out uh and he can stand back and just throw the occasional jive at them about how you know Oh, this will be a terrible place to live. Either one of you guys get to be prime uh, premier. So you know he'll just do that that kind of uh, peripheral damage, um, you know, drive by stuff. I, I, unless he's he, something happens and he's on the hot seat. So there's there's time to make that happen. But um, I, I think you know, and again to Daryl's point about the quietness, Mister Ford has been, I think, in his campaign, of being quite uh, careful about trying to keep the level of engagement down. In the uh, in the weeks leading up, not too many press appearances, not too many um, press conferences. Keep it fairly quiet from their perspective. Don't kind of don't don't mess with anything. Leave it as it is. Carl, uh, the Conservatives have uh, some well, I guess some big boots to to fill here. Rod Phillips and Christine Elliott will not be running in this election. Uh, what's uh, what's that loss going to mean for the party? Well, I mean. It, I don't. It, it's so, things are so leader focused these days that I'm sure there's a high, high proportion of people in Ontario who couldn't tell you who either of those were. Even though Christine Elliott had a lot more history with the party than uh, Doug Ford, uh, I and I think you know they have enough uh, bench, bench strength at least to uh, present credible candidates. Uh, I mean. They have a very unfortunate finance minister whose name nobody can pronounce. <laughs> I mean, he himself is difficult to pronouncing his own name. If you can say it, good for you. I'm not even going to dare. But he's a pretty good communicator. Uh, but the, the fact is that the last campaign, either federal or provincial, that I can remember that featured a team was 1993 federal campaign, the Jean Chrétien campaign. Uh, he won that campaign. The liberals were worried that he seemed way too much like yesterday's man and he you remember he ran holding a picture of the red book with his team that included paul martin together we have the team we have the policy of the program they kept saying the team they kept emphasizing the team and ford has somewhat emphasized the team as well when his popularity waned a bit but i think he won't be that tempted to do it this time and will more emphasize that we've got we're, we're past the worst stuff we we piloted the ship of state, the ship of Ontario government, 
through the pandemic and we made it. And, you know, Ford is lucky in a way. People seem to have short memories of the biggest disaster, which was long-term care and the healthcare system in general and how the healthcare system really couldn't cope and how even now there's shortages and fears. But somehow, you know, just one final thing. I mean, his approach is very different from people you'd say were in his big political family looking south of the border, like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, or Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas. Their approach is always divide and conquer, sharpen differences, sharpen divisions, find scapegoats and enemies, gay people, you know, immigrants, whatever. That is not, Doug Ford's a Canadian after all. Doug Ford's a conservative and a a populist right-of-center conservative, but he's still a Canadian. What he's trying to do is present a more consensual uh, approach. Amazing how much he's talking about green energy and the environment after having canceled the uh, uh, rebate for electric cars. Now they're investing in them. So, uh, you know, I think the, the, the hope for the opposition has got to be, to go back to that other issue, has got to be that somehow enough people who lost people in long-term care or who feel that their management of the healthcare system and long-term care system was so bad, and of education, by the way, has been so bad that they're going to wake up and start getting angry as they get closer to the ballot box. But, you know, that may be a long, a long shot. Daryl, uh, when we spoke uh, last week, we were we were talking about this. And what doesn't make your top five is, uh, issues was housing. But you feel that could still sway the election. Do you still feel that way? It's definitely in the top five. I mean, yeah. uh, the difference on, on housing this time around is that it's not the usual place that housing sits in an election campaign or, or even in any of our issues polling where it's about low-income housing, helping the homeless. What's really emerged is the lack of access to middle-class housing. And this is a real vulnerability for the government. And the reason for that is the people who are feeling this issue the most are the people who are the biggest swing voters in the province, and that's suburbanites. People who are commuting suburbanites who feel that they're being denied what they they all the things that they've done well in their life to pay off for this is supposed to be your own patch of land with your own driveway in your own backyard. And it's become all but inaccessible for most people living particularly in the GTA these days, increasingly in places like Ottawa, London, and other places. And it's interesting when you go in on every other issue, it's really clear who the party is, who's the leader. On this one, it isn't. And it is in the top five. So there could be some noise around that. The other thing I would add to all of this, and this speaking directly to what Carl's saying, because he's raised a really interesting point, and both Tom has too, on the leadership question. If we were having this election in the first year of Doug Ford's mandate, he would have got creamed. Mm. The COVID pandemic has completely transformed his profile with Ontarians, for good or for bad, however you want to look at it. But that chippy, you know, going after the progressive uh, focus that he had in that first part of his, his, uh, his mandate has all but evaporated. And he's become very much a centrist type of politician. I don't want to say Bill Davis, but, you know, in a, mm-hmm. a similar kind of vein and has that type of profile with Ontarians right now. It's really quite bizarre the degree of transformation he's gone through. Justin Trudeau, interestingly enough, did not go through that transformation. <laughs> he, he was, you know, affected deeply by the previous election campaign got even worse in this election campaign has got through this complete cycle of, you know, uh, darling to disappointment, to dislike, and people are just through with them. Doug Ford's kind of gone in the other direction. And it's shocking because if you would have asked me in his first year of 
of leadership, whether he had a chance of possibly being getting reelected, I, I think I would have put my money on no, because <laughs> uh, he was in a really tough spot. But right now, he's uh, he's the horse for the course, and he's doing really, really quite well with Ontarians, shockingly well. He just has to be, I guess, managed and handled so he doesn't do anything wrong. Well, actually, I disagree with you on, on that. Okay. I, I think that actually his more natural presentation, as opposed to the federal government Justin Trudeau approach, which is the ask me anything and I won't answer it. I'll just spout mm-hmm. out my talking line. His spontaneity is something that actually works for him. There's a genuine aspect to the way he presents himself in public that really um, is an interesting contrast to other types of politicians. Whether you like him or dislike him, people kind of uh, respond to that presence. He's a rare kind of fish in in politics. He's a guy who's comfortable in his own skin. And that's typically not what you get in overmanaged, over-directed types of politicians these days. And, And I think these troubled times actually set up more for that type of a presentation. It'll be interesting to see whether the real Andrea Horvath comes out or the real Stephen Del Duca comes out to be able to compete with that. Because this this guy is at a different level in terms of the way he connects with people. And, uh, you know, in the first part of his term, it was something that really kind of turned people off. He seemed to have learned. He's gotten better with it. And, he, and his presentation is actually quite effective. I don't think anybody's going to say, you know, qualify him for Mensa. <laughs> or anything right. like that, but there's a, there's an authenticity to him these days that uh, that actually works quite well for him. Well, folks, a very interesting discussion, and as we said, we've got about a month away until uh, we are going to the ballot box. But I want to thank our guests on Unpublished TV: Daryl Brickert, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs; Tom Parkin, political commentator; and Carl Narenberg, a columnist with Rabble. And I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.